Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good morning and welcome to New Books in National Security, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Jeffrey Bristol and I am a host on the channel. We are here today with Professor Omar Ashur, who has written the book, How ISIS Fights, Military Tactics in Iraq, Syria, Libya, and Egypt. This book is an excellent examination of ISIS's operations across a variety of theaters using an extremely involved uh, data set, as well as intensive field work. Uh, Professor Ashur is an Associate Professor of Security and Military Studies. He is the founding director of the Critical Security Studies Program at the Doha Institute for Graduate Studies and the Strategic Studies Unit in the Arab Center for Research and Policy Studies. In this episode, we will be discussing his book, how it came to be, the research he did to produce it, as well as the current state of ISIS, what links ISIS's many franchises together, as well as uh, sundry topics related to ISIS and military operations. Welcome to the channel this morning, or I suppose also this afternoon, uh, Professor Ashur. Thank you very much. I'm uh, very happy to be here. Yeah, great. We're looking forward to having you. So uh, how are things in Doha? Uh, all good, sunny and cold at the same time. Uh, so it's funny how in uh, January and February, almost anywhere can seem cold. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. It's it's quite sunny, but still the weather is a bit uh, relatively cold. You know, not not Europe cold, but relatively cold. That's right. That's right. Well, and that's sometimes it's relativity that matters. So let's begin. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about. Um, Kind of how you came to write this book. It's an interesting, very deeply researched and uh, very analytically intense work on a subject that presents some research difficulties. So I wonder if you could just talk about, you know, how did you conceive of this book and what are some of the things that you did to kind of realize its existence? Well, it's uh, there's a, a personal story and there's an academic story. So the, the personal story, basically, the idea of the book, um, I was trying to trace it, really. It, was a, it came by, by accident. 
I think I was in in 2012 in Cairo, of all places, near Tahrir Square. And at that point, the Arab Spring was was uh, pretty much very active, and uh, there was there were hopes of seeing uh, uh, what we call a fourth wave of democratization that hits the the Arab world, and uh, also from my previous work on collective de-radicalization transition from violent extremism to nonviolent activism. Uh, I was thinking also there may be a chance for a second wave of de-radicalization similar to what happened in the late 90s and early 2000s that's going to happen. And then I see a propaganda video of uh, uh, the Nusra Front back then, it was called. And uh, they simply did a tactic uh, to take over a, a position, a fortified position of with multi-layered uh, belts um, uh, of of obstacles and and uh, fortify and almost like uh, pillboxes around around it, and it was a headquarters of the of the command in Aleppo, uh, located in the officers uh, club. And uh, basically, the FSA, the Free Syrian Army, was trying to take that position for weeks and it was failing. Um, and then the Nusra Front lined up a five uh, suicide uh, vehicles. So SVIDs, the Suicide Vehicle Borne uh, IEDs, uh, followed by two large trucks, um, five and seven ton trucks uh, filled with uh, explosives, very primitive ones, um, pretty much similar to Timothy McVeigh's uh, truck back in Oklahoma. And uh, they, lined, they lined up this and they started hitting one belt after the other, one position after the other. Uh, the first five cars took basically the three obstacles in front of them, and the two trucks hit the um, uh, the uh, the building, and uh, and that's it. the The position was taken, and uh, they they followed up by a a group of uh, what I call in the book suicide guerrilla formations, um, or uh, in jihadi term. So the, the first t- tactic in in jihadi terms is called qasf bin nasf, uh, shelling by blowing up. Uh, the second one is called the Inrimasiyin uh, tactics, which is basically suicidal guerrilla formation to, to capitalize. And in 10 minutes, they did what the FSA was do, failed to do in weeks. Um, and they uh, they captured this on camera and disseminated it for propaganda and recruitment and, and so on. So I was looking at this and thinking, okay, so maybe if, if, if it's, if these tactics, this is not even a strategy, that, that's like a, a pure uh, tactic that was done before, like we saw, I saw before in Iraq, but I, I, it, it never really hit me that um, um, I, I never developed the, the, the kind of thoughts that came afterwards. I, I saw that uh, video. Um, and I was thinking if, if it was that easy um, uh, with a group that is almost insignificant back then, marginal, secretive, um, you know, all all its uh, figures are covered, are are masked. Uh, they never use their names. Uh, people don't don't really trust them, and so on. So no popular support, uh, no state support, and uh, limited resources. Uh, and then they managed to do this in about ten minutes. Then uh, why would they, you know, turn into a? Why would they de-radicalize? Why would they turn, you know, hand over the weapons and run in elections and become? A political party, you know, and wh- wh- why would they do that? That's on one end. Uh, but also on the other end, um, um, it, the others will look at what they're doing and they will try to imitate them. And then if they are that experienced, uh, I don't think they will stop. So the the whole idea of, you know, macro changes 
towards democratization, towards nonviolence, is not going to happen. It was very, back then, it was a very pessimistic thought. Um, but then that kept on rising, and then we saw what happened in 2013, 2014, 2015, um, and uh, how these tactics uh, developed and developed. And, and they really, they, and that's the academic part, they challenged many of the conclusions, like uh, from Sun Tzu's, uh, you know, tactics without a strategy is just the, the noise before defeat. That was, in a way, unproven uh, or, uh, or challenged, at least. And uh, but also many of the academic literature that uh, tells you, you know the insurgent side uh, will need the geographical uh, support, will need the state support, will need the local support, or else it will fail. Um, that also has uh, so most of these macro level, uh, let's say, conditions were, were were extremely challenged by that book, and hence I I was. Uh, focusing more on how these tactics were developed and how that group operated and were able to uh, execute them in multiple countries multiple times uh, and survived without the macro level conditions if you wish so that's the story yeah so <laughs> right well it's, it's very interesting and it's very dynamic obviously those times for any everybody who's involved raised a lot of interesting questions so and i think that what you just said raises a question for me what what do you think was the origin of their tactics? What gave them this idea? Was it entirely just uh, a transfer of uh, tactical knowledge that they learned from the operations against the United States and Iraq? Because it seems to me that there's a little bit more going on here than just the standard insurgent guerrilla operations, which I think your book indicates. So w- w- what's the, the kind of seed that planted these uh broader tactical and strategic thoughts in, in the heads of the members of ISIS? Yeah, there, there's, uh, it's, there are multiple factors, right, that, that let them uh, reach that stage of, of uh, hyper-agency, if you wish. Uh, but uh, definitely facing the U.S. and Iraq was one of it because um, they, uh, the, the ones that survived the surge, survived the 100,000, 150,000, U.S. troops and, you know, the 300,000 uh, Iraqi army plus the supportive militias, whether Shiite or Sunni, um, during the awakening, um, those were had to employ um, dif- different tactics to survive. And when they were able to employ this um, against uh, a much... Um, let's say, uh, degraded Syrian army, um, that was a much easier enemy to, to, to face in a way. Um, but also they, and then here is the agency, they did not just do that um, without disseminating these tactics, without teaching others how to do it, without learn, uh, getting all the experiences that, uh, that were developing between 2003 and 2010 in Iraq, 2003, 2011 in Iraq, and then uh, transferring it elsewhere. Um, so, uh, so it was it was a mix of uh, of these factors, and I think I go in the book. I go through what what is really unique uh, about that organization, you know, in terms of its moral force, uh, in terms of its unit cohesion, in terms of its autonomization, you know, self reliance on from squad to uh, to platoon to company levels. 
in terms of its trans-regional combat experiences and flexible hierarchies and, and focus on the specialization, which I, I try to tell that story, like how, how it developed how it developed in uh, in 2010. Um, um, and then, uh, so, and, and I was saying all of this is not so unique features. You know, others have it as well. Other insurgent groups that were operating around it, around this organization has it. Uh, but then what it gave it the, the edge is uh, mainly the, the tactical dimension and the amount of tactical innovations. And, and I also I go through the 15 categories of tactics and how did they employ them, but also how did they ke- keep on switching gears in terms of uh, strategic uh, or, or ways of warfare in terms of you know, conventional guerrilla terrorism and then back and then upshifts from terrorism to guerrilla to conventional using these um, uh, innovative tactics and uh, and in the end, you, you you end up with an organization that is very uh, has a ve- has a way of combat. Uh, quite, uh, I think I, I made it clear in the book uh, has a specific way of fighting, uh, but also it it keeps on developing it and uh, adapting uh, to the changing surrounding it, and in t- especially in terms of uh, the limited resources and the number of enemies, because basically they, they those guys have no friends. They they as you see, you know, war with. Uh, uh, with uh, organizations that is uh, the difference, the ideological difference are like hair thin, you know, with Al-Qaeda, with the Taliban, with others, uh, but also war with the United States, with uh, most of the states in the uh, the, uh, in the Middle East and, and so on and so forth. So uh, in that sense, they, they it's uh, in a way develop or die, you know, in, in their or adapt and... Uh, uh, very Darwinian in in their approach in that sense. Yeah, well, and it's interesting because you mentioned they don't they didn't have any friends, and they have kind of a it seems they have a a method of making their own friends, which is planting this these franchises, which I want to get to in a second. But something you you mentioned made me think. Um, you know, do you think that maybe some of this interesting conversion owes itself uh, to the presence of former members and sometimes highly ranked members of the previous uh, Iraqi army under Saddam uh, in their ranks. You know, it It seems to me that's maybe potentially, and perhaps you can correct me because this is not a field of my, my real expertise, uh, that that is kind of unique among insurgent groups, having people with large level military experience, uh, with large formations, particularly with heavy combat experience given uh the potential for them to have fought both in the war against Iran as well as in the uh, in Operation Desert Storm uh, and the invasion of Kuwait. Uh, do you think that that's a, a factor here, or is there something else going on? I think it was a factor, but it, it was not really a decisive factor. Um, you, on one end, you know, the they had recruits from not just from the Iraqi army, but also from the Syrian army and from other armies uh, in the region. Um, that's one. But the other thing is that the, the recruit first the, the, the recruits from these armies. These armies were not really um, very combat effective or military effective. Like the Iraqi army was was not a very did not really encourage autonomy. Like the the factors I was describing in terms of autonomy, innovation, um, the, the, these assets were not really encouraged, or these uh, areas were not really encouraged within the uh, in the Iraqi army. Um, and then also the, the commanders that rose to to lead in ISIS uh, with their military background, uh, Haji Bakr is an example, Sumir Khlifawi, who was the, the, the head of the military council 
one point killed by the Syrian uh, rebels uh, in 2014. Um, he was an officer in the uh, signals intelligence uh, in the air defense unit. So if you're an intelligence officer within the air defense units in Saddam's army, your main duty is to report on your colleagues. That, you know, that, that's, that's your main duty, to, to make sure that the air defense are loyalists to Saddam regime, and you're a, as an intelligence officer, you need to report on them. Um, so the, the, not, not really the skills that he learned in Saddam's army that, that made him uh, what he became later on in terms of a, a strategist and also a, a tactician who focused on this specialization, on this area of specialization within the, um, the, the, the military council of IS, and then later on, um, you know, expanded into Syria and uh, basically formed a strategy in Syria to uh, how to rebuild the organization or, uh, or the Syrian branch of the organization that became one of its uh, strongest. Um, so yes, the, the, there is some some of that. Bidawiya Abdurrahman Bidawi also was, uh, at least the, the Iraqi authority accuses him of being uh, behind the campaigns in Nainawa and in the Ambar back in 2014 and the mastermind of uh, taking the uh, city of Mosul, although he was killed in the first, uh, just before the attack happened, uh, blew himself up. Uh, but also, he had a military background. So some of the skillful commanders had a, had that background. Uh, but it's it's it, it's the facing the United States in Iraq between 2003 and 2010 uh, explains more their skill set that they employed later on after 2010 uh, than uh, having uh, been trained in this in these uh, skill sets uh, by the, uh, the former military training in Saddam's army. Yeah, so it's uh, really more of a trial by fire, which which I think is interesting. If you look at military history, you often find that uh, you wind up with different people in command at wartime than you had you know, during times of peace. So I, I think that makes a certain certain amount of sense. Yeah. Um, so you know, talking about these foreign franchises, so you mentioned that there's, that ISIS really didn't have any friends. And, and I think that uh, that's true. So one of the things it's kind of done is managed to make friends, <laughs> so to speak, in in this franchising activity. And you, you do a good job in the book kind of talking about some of the parallels in tactical and strategic operations between these individual franchises. But I was wondering if here you could do, uh, expand on that a little bit more and talk about the idea of franchising itself, uh, how ISIS has used that, how ISIS, and how ISIS actually managed to uh, disseminate some of its lessons learned on the battlefield and uh, develop a kind of a military, tactical, strategic, whatever you want to call it, culture that makes these franchises more than just, say, Al-Qaeda, the Islamic Maghreb uh, rebranded or Al-Shabaab. Uh, rebranded. Sure. So uh, the the organization was very very clever in terms of um, um, building up and recruiting um, uh, collectivities um, or parts of collectivities. So they entered Syria with about six men, and uh, three of them were foreigners, and three of them did not live in Syria. The Syrians uh, did not live in Syria for a long time. They were imprisoned before in, in, in Iraq or were fighting in, uh, in Iraq. Uh, and then when, when they entered there, they pretty much were um, trying to recruit. Look at, first, first they had um, um, 
quite a bit of intelligence on the rebel scene, uh, also the jihadist scene, but also on the government side. And they were trying to recruit from the uh, from within the organizations, or first they targeted the organizational leadership. Um, and despite being small, despite being less resourceful, resourceful than the other organization, I think I, I say the story of the attempt on uh, to recruit Jaish al-Islam, one of the uh, the southern rebel groups that uh, were located strategically in eastern Ghouta, very close to Damascus. Um, and they went for the head. And the, when, when they met with the head of, uh, of uh, Jaish al-Islam, uh, Islam al-Lushba, or uh, uh, sorry, Zahran al-Lush back then, um, he, um, they, they met him, and when he asked them, how many men do you have? He, he, they, they said about 30 men. Julian, he said, who was the, the head of the group uh, or the delegation meeting him, uh, that we have around 30 men. Uh, Alush back then had about 300 men, so 10 times their manpower. Uh, and they still went and you know asked him to uh, g- give us an oath of loyalty as if they are the, the bigger entity or the... And um, of course, he, he when when they told him this, he he refused. And they also part of it that they did not really trust them because they were all masked and they were they, they never gave the real names or he gave his real name and where who is he and what is he doing in the in Ghouta. Um, but it, it gives you the idea that the the organization has a very clear strategy and it's very bold in terms of executing it. That you try to recruit collectivities first. If you fail, you go for the factions. Uh, you see, because you have enough intelligence to identify which factions uh, are affiliated, where what is their ideological leanings, what are their, um, uh, let's say, material and tribal uh, affiliations and interests. Um, and uh, and you try to recruit from the factions, and this is what happened. They were recruiting factions, and also you try to recruit individuals via um, the, uh, the propaganda, the, the, the media, uh, so they were cl- very clever at that, and in 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 a way, they outmaneuvered most of the Syrian rebels. I I talk about the story of how they uh, drove out first the the Syrian uh, rebel rivals from 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 Raqqa the first time in 2013, and then took again Raqqa another time from them in 2014. And it was ba- mainly a, a mix of uh, recruitment uh, and and terrorizing the ones who were not cooperating. Uh, it didn't work everywhere. It worked in Raqqa City. It didn't work ev- uh, everywhere. But when it worked, it uh, it really uh, recruited. So they 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 were they're not friends anymore. They were beca- they became IS members. Um, similar tactics were employed in Libya and uh, to a certain degree, Egypt was a bit different in Sinai because um, b- back then you had a whole organization minus a few small factions that defected. But a whole organization, which is uh, Ansar Bayt al-Maqdis, that gave them an oath of loyalty and became, you know, a province, Sinai province of Vyas uh, of the Islamic State. Um, so they, they, these and and they don't they don't accept, uh, you know, uh, uh, like decentralized allies in a way. They you need to to either apply or get recruited and be part of the organization and call yourself a province. Um, so, uh, other than that, it's, uh, you're either in or out in a, in a way. Um, but also you, you have very interesting things. I, I know you wanted to ask about Afghanistan. Maybe that will, the question will, will come. Uh, but also they use this, uh, uh, idea of when you target the former regime, 
So you recruit from, let's say, the Ba'athist uh, party members or Ba'athist officers. You try to recruit from them because now they are targeted by the new regime uh, in Iraq. Uh, in Libya, similar things happened when they took Sirt. They recruited from uh, former security uh, officials who were uh, with the Gaddafi regime. And it was quite interesting the way they, and this is also intelligence and propaganda, um, the way that they sold, uh, they, they sold this, their story is that, listen, you were, uh, well, you, you don't like democracy, you know, because they were Gaddafi officials. The Gaddafi was anti-democratic. Uh, you don't like the West. You know, we don't like the West either. So, you know, you don't like the revolution because the revolution unseated you. We don't like the revolution. We don't believe in the revolution. February, uh, February revolution is coming with all these uh, ideals of freedom and democracy. We don't like it. So basically, you know, and we're, we're Islamic. We're, uh, you know, you're Islamic, we're Islamic. Uh, and also they played on the tribal part because uh, Sirt was uh, was attacked from the west from Misrata, so they played it in a way that this is uh, this is not the um, the Tripoli uh, pro-revolution government trying to assert authority on Sirt and trying to uh, basically put back law and order in, in Sirt under a new regime. No, these are Misratan tribes from the west. Coming and forming an attack on us on the on the tribes of Sirt, and some of them of of the um, of IS in Libya were, were from from the were locals were from Sirt, so they they played also the tribal part uh, quite well, and it was successful. You know they uh, they took Sirt for uh, about a year from 2015 to 2016, very strategic city facing uh, Europe from the uh, from the southern Mediterranean side. Uh, in the in the middle of uh, of Libya, so dividing the east and the west. So um, so that, that that these kind of uh, mix of propaganda, intelligence infiltration, uh, and when needed uh, terrorism, uh, it worked uh, for them for a, for a while before you know uh, before they were removed from cert by uh, the Tripoli uh, forces and a lot and lot of support from the U.S. and other European partners. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. So is that you talk a bit about this in the in the book? So I, I want to return to the franchise question and maybe after this one, but raising the issue of ISIS's fall, you know, in the book, I got the impression that, you know, you might think of ISIS as kind of uh, as a fire with a lot of tender and kindling, kindling and not a lot of fuel, if that metaphor makes sense to you. You know, you have a lot of hot burning, small uh, pieces of wood or what have you. Uh, but there's just not really anything that can keep the flame going for a long period of time in a sustainable way. And maybe that's partly because of the intensity that ISIS brings uh, with its military activity. Would you agree with that? Um, and, could, and if so or, or not, uh, could you elaborate a little bit, please? Yeah, I, I do agree. In a way, I, I was basically arguing in the, in the final chapter that uh, I used uh, Field Marshal's uh, Montgomery phrase, uh, excels in the art of fighting, but mediocre in the art, of, uh, the art of the conduct of war. So the strategic level, there's no grand strategy, basically. 
Like how are you, if you take uh, this city or this town or this country, um, are you, how are you going to keep it? Um, you know, like with, with this level of ideological extremism and um, and uh, pretty much uh, that behavior. Um, so th- there was there, there was no grand stra- the, the, in terms of a grand strategy there was no grand strategy. So that, hence I was saying basically that this is tactical and operational successes. Uh, but ISIS has zero strategic success so far. Um, all all the relatively strategic successes were undone and quite quickly. Uh, the, but the issue is, the, the dangerous part is that uh, to remove it, uh, it was quite costly. And what it, like minus the ideology, what it brings on the military uh, side is transferable. Um, so hence, it, it is repeatable. Um, if you are interested in repeating it, and we were seeing some elements of that going on in Afghanistan now in terms of recruitment, propaganda, uh, tactical uh, uh, levels. Um, so it, it could be repeatable. Um, so th- th- this is the dangerous part. But in terms of uh, grand strategy, you're, you're absolutely right. Like There's no grand strategic success in, in that sense. So it, it, it burned itself in a way. Uh, but it's. Uh, I, I'm just worried about the uh, the famous mistake we may, many of us uh, uh, have uh, have done in 2010 by discounting it. And we we said back then it's uh, down. Um, some people said it's out. Uh, the ISI, which is the predecessor of ISIS and IS, um, and the organization four years later was uh, actually two years later was breaking prisons all over uh, Iraq and. Uh, the famous breaking the walls campaign, and uh, they leased over 800 of its uh, cadres, and uh, and then started rebuilding itself again in Iraq and in Syria, and then after that in other parts of the world. Uh, so it wasn't over, and uh, and part of that has to do with what I talk about in the book, which is the, the tactics of rising from the ashes, as I call, as I called it. You know, and and that's interesting too, because one of the things that I think strikes me about ISIS is. And I mean, it strikes many other people. This is certainly not my my, my uh, realization or an epiphany or anything, but is it's local orientation. You know, in the beginning, when they were very solid in Syria, we saw some, maybe a couple of coordinated attacks in Europe and the United States. Um, and then we saw some inspired, quote unquote, attacks where there probably wasn't very much, if any, coordination. Um but definitely the attack on what, uh, you know, Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda might consider the far enemy uh, is not a, a major concern. So what do you think? Do you think that's true? Do you think ISIS is more of a local uh, phenomenon than an international one in terms of international tax? Obviously, it spreads, propagates through franchising. And, and, and kind of your, your description almost makes me think of, and uh, I hope this is not a flippant, Mark, given our context, but a little bit of a virus, like a flu, you know, it's probably not going to kill you, but you're going to hurt a lot and you're going to transmit it to a bunch of people. So is that really the main threat? And I realize this is a somewhat um, Euro, Amero, Euro, European centered question, but uh, is that the main threat of ISIS? Is this kind of local infiltration and uh, exploitation of ISIS, a, an international terror plot, or is there potential for it to kind of change as time goes on it's you're right the, the the initial focus was mainly local 
And then when there was an international involvement, then they, they started to escalate uh, internationally. And uh, there was some excellent work done on that by uh, some of the colleagues uh, like uh, Professor uh, Thomas Hegehammer on, uh, on, you know, when did they start targeting Europe? Um, and um, the, but, but the issue here is that what, what happens if they control the state? You know, what happens if they win locally? Because they could have won locally without, uh, you know, I believe like certain Raqqa without uh, the coalition's intervention. Uh, they could have stayed there and perhaps expanded. Um, and uh, maybe, maybe Iraq, it's a, it's a bit different, uh, uh, especially in the, in the center and the south. It would have been more difficult for them. But, the, you know, they, they, they could have pulled an upset in a, in a way because they, they pulled upset when you fight uh, in Mosul uh, almost uh, 50 to 1 and still managed to take the city uh, without your, your commander, you know, the the beginning the the commander was decapitated um uh then you you can make some some of these uh you can pull some of these upsets uh, but what so what happens when they when they take a significant part of a country and uh, and they use all these resources to expand further uh, so then they they would become more of an international uh threat in a way i, I think but also they will use they, they have no issues with using international terrorism whatsoever they encourage it all the time they um they keep on propagating with all kind of uh basically targeting civilians any anywhere uh, with all kind of um uh, uh tactics from small arms from knives and uh, and uh, cars all the way to uh bombs and, and machine guns and so on so so they have no issues with that uh, whatsoever so then 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 you you cannot discount the uh, the international threat you know with uh uh, given past behavior, uh, even though the initial focus was was local. So, and that, and that kind of brings me back to uh, the question I had about franchising that I'd love to hear your thoughts on. You know, I my PhD is in anthropology, and so I in political anthropology specifically. So, you know, I kind of have a tendency to think I, I'm comfortable with this idea of fissioning and fusioning groups. But one of the things that you know we haven't seen quite, I, I guess, a, a fission yet, but uh, maybe we have. Anyway, point being, one of the things that strikes me in your your description of how um, ISIS, the original group, was able to franchise outward is we're looking at Libya and Egypt, which are Arab societies that have generally similar tribal formations to one another. Obviously, they're not the same. They don't have the same dynamics, but they kind of have the same general schema or pattern. They share the same language. So it seems easy or easier to expand in those groups and exploit some of those same cleavages. And because, again, you mentioned like the Ba'athist Party common in Iraq and Syria. There's Ba'athist ideology probably in Libya. Their expansion into Afghanistan, uh, Somalia to a certain degree, and specifically Nigeria, I know before the interview we were talking about West Africa, is very different because those are, you know, on the one hand, Pashtuns have tribes, but they don't, they're not corporate in the same way as many Arab tribes. They don't function similarly. And then it's not really a tribal landscape anyway, in the same way, because the Pashtuns and the Uzbeks don't quite have one. Um, and also West Africa, tribal organizations where they exist are, are, are structured very differently. Um, they can be more hierarchical. So given the differences in these societies, and I think Somali also clans are more important than tribes. So anyway, given the differences in all of these societies, how has ISIS been able to do its similar franchising work uh, in a 
foreign, alien, maybe even sometimes hostile cultural terrain? Yeah, that's a fascinating question, really. Um, the, 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 there was no uh, carbon copies. Like I tried in the book, I tried to show the patterns and uh, like I gave them even acronyms, you know, just to, because they, they kept on repeated, uh, they kept on repeating them. Uh, but they were repeating them on um, uh, on town and city levels, not even country levels. So uh, I tried to make a comparison with Derna and D- Derna in Libya, in uh, eastern Libya, uh, and Sirte in central Libya, and how they failed to control the the first one. Uh, although many of the recruits uh, from the Batal battalion who joined ISIS later came from Derna and returned back to Derna. They had many locals there, and why and how did they, they they managed to control the second, all of the second, uh, the, the larger city, the more important uh, geostrategic city, um, and and in Derna, what you're saying is absolutely right. Like they, you know, in 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 Sirt, they played very well on the propaganda issue of um, uh, you know Gaddafi, uh, for, former uh, tribesmen being uh, discriminated against by the revolution and so on. In Derna, it was uh, cousin against cousin, brother against brother, literally, like uh, the ha- house divided between, you know, for and, and against, and they were shooting at each other in the in the streets, um, and and they were defeated in the end because the the, the overwhelming majority were, were against them. Um, but it, it took a while though, and a lot of destruction on the city. Um, but uh, absolutely right in terms of Afghanistan. But Afghanistan also they they were using they, they were there, there are some similarities uh, actually. Uh, one of that, it's uh, it's interesting. Uh, this is more of a similarity and difference. So, uh, when the Taliban was were still in the insurgent phase and they were facing them in the north of the country, and and beat beat them multiple times in Nangarhar, in the in the east, in Kunar, uh, and also in the north. And one of the operations in the north, uh, they uh, they besieged them, besieged the ISK, uh, Islamic State Khorasan Province, ISKP. And um, and the commander uh, of ISKP called for uh, actually rather than getting beheaded by the Taliban, he called for uh, to, to to surrender to the to the Afghan army, um, and they and it worked. The Afghan army was thinking we will use we, okay we'll we'll take him as a prisoner, uh, we will send uh, helicopters to get that group out um, from the uh, uh, f- f- away from the Taliban. And we're going to use him to uh, basically launch a propaganda campaign on Afghan official Afghan TV against the uh, the, the Taliban, saying that they are mainly uh, Pakistan uh, uh, agents and so on. But that commander was also ex-Taliban, so they they managed to do the, to do that, and they launched a prop. It was a, in a way it was a success. They they caught the uh, the guy, got information about ISKP, uh, also used him uh, as a propaganda, uh, as counter narrative and counter propaganda uh, to uh, against the Taliban. Um, uh, on TV and so on. So in a way, it was it was successful. Uh, but then now uh, things revert. Now the, the, these guys who are working in the Afghan national intelligence and they are the insurgents now because the Taliban is in power. And um, and uh, if you are an ISKP commander, you would be thinking, hmm. So these guys, we had some relations with them before, um, and uh, now they are. We're both on the same side. Uh, we can sell the same. Uh, line that we sold in Sirte, um and in a way in in Iraq um, uh, for the Baathists uh, to these guys, so there, there are some similarities. I'm not I'm not saying they're going to repeat the exact same thing, but th- there are some similarities there. Um, 
Uh, and one interesting factor recently, uh, the clashes that happened up, up north in Dakar. So these are Tajik lands. These are not Pashtun areas. Uh, but ISKP uh, claimed responsibility. And, uh, and that's one area uh, claimed responsibility for killing one of the Taliban commanders up north. And I am um, thinking also the ethnic dimension there. Because ISKP can always say, okay, that's a Pashtun organization. We're, we're, not, we're not ethnic. We're, we're just Islamic. So the Tajiks are uh, Muslims as well, and we're happy to, and they had, you know, one of the, the leading commanders of Omar Tajiki, who was a uh, counterterrorism official in uh, in Tajikistan, uh, not not in Afghan, but in, in neighboring Tajikistan. So uh, uh, so basically, they can play on that card, on that ethnic card. So there, there are some cards there to, 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 to play in a way in Afghanistan uh, that will not play out the same way uh, they played out in Iraq and Libya uh, and elsewhere, but sometimes you, you will find some similarities there for sure. Yeah, well, and I think that's interesting because I think it just thought just occurred to me if you flip, it's kind of almost in terms of ethnic situations, the mirror of the serious situation where I think maybe the main opposition fault line against ISIS was not ethnic, but there was, you know, certainly the military standpoint, it seems like probably the uh, most important uh, units for military action against ISIS in Syria were Kurds. Uh, and that was certainly uh, an ethnic, you could argue an ethnic conflict in some ways between Arabs and Kurds uh, in Syria that uh, helped galvanize ISIS's fall. So I think it would be kind of ironic if ISIS is able to benefit from the same thing in Afghanistan. Yeah, uh, but also Syrian democratic forces, the, the, uh, it played quite well on the idea that we are multi-ethnic. So they, 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 it was, you're right, the, the backbone was the YPG, the YPG and the YPJ, the uh, People's Protection Units, which is Kurdish, and Women's Protection Units, which is Kurdish as well. But also they managed to gather around 18 militias um, um, to form the Syrian Democratic Forces. And um, a large part of these are, were, were Arab tribesmen. Um, and the reason they joined is that they were, there was so many, basically ISIS, that's why I was saying they had no friends. They killed from so many tribes in the east and uh, northeast of Syria that they have vendettas with lots of the clans um, um, in, the, in this area. So most of these clans basically gathered against them. Um, in the form of Syria Democratic Forces. So they, they also quite learn quite fast. So, uh, you know, they, they uh, in the Afghan case, case they, targeted ethnic, uh, they targeted on ethnicity, but ethnicity associated with, with sectarianism. So the case of the Shiite Hazaras. So Hazaras are very visible in terms of, uh, you know, their, their, their features, their physical features. Um, and uh, they also... Um, the overwhelming majority are Shiite Muslims. Uh, so they, and they are located in central Afghanistan. So what we saw recently is that the um, ISKP recruits from the south, which is a bit worrying because these are Taliban strongholds, Pashtun Taliban strongholds. Uh, and then they commit uh, suicide attacks in the center, in, in central Afghanistan. Um, so the the basically Hazara areas. This is new. That's a new development. Uh, other than being just uh, located in the east and operating in the east and sometimes in the north, 
Uh, now recruitment happens in the south and then attacks happen in the center. Uh, and then the, also the sectarian outbidding, if you wish. So the Taliban is trying to to sell to the international community that we will not we're not um, discriminating against uh, the multi uh, the multiple sects and uh, and ethnicities in Afghanistan. And here we are, Taliban officials, you know, celebrating with uh, Hadara religious leaders, Shiite uh, uh, proceedings. Um, and um, and they do and they do that and they they put it in their official media. Uh, the, the Taliban takes the same, you know, uh, uh, coverage that the Taliban has done, and uh, sorry, ISKP takes the same coverage that the Taliban has done, and basically say, okay, you see, they are selling out. They are now celebrating with the heretics, you know, with the with the Shiites and so on, and uh, and trying to sell this to. Uh, the mid ranks and the the lower ranks of the Taliban to basically try to create fissures uh, on sectarian lines, very similar to what was happening before in in Syria. You know, trying to, you can't you know influence the leadership, go for the grassroots and try to create uh, fissures within the same organization and tr- recruit from there, just peel off from there. Yeah, well, I think that highlights the the difficulty of the Taliban government uh, in its position right now, particularly with its Iran as its neighbor and Iran seeming like uh, it's maybe one of the best chances for the Taliban to get international recognition. Although, of course, that has not happened uh, as we've seen in the last couple of days. So, but we only have maybe about 15 or 20 minutes, 15, 17 minutes left. So one other place that ISIS is, is, has hot operations is West Africa. And that, to me, seems like an even more difficult place for the Arab structure to expand into. One, because, you know, there's not always the best feeling sometimes uh, among sub-Saharan Africans towards Arabs. Um, the band of Martania Mali, there's often racial discrimination uh, between those two groups. Also, they're kind of under their social structures are very different. The languages are totally different. Uh, Sufism is very prevalent in large parts of Africa, which obviously rests uneasily with ISIS. Yet we've seen Boko Haram and some of these other groups uh, that have either started to rebrand themselves or at least affiliate themselves strongly with it. So, you know, how did that happen? How did these uh, how did some of the how did ISIS members whom one presumes have difficulty traveling long distances internationally? Um, and then have language and cultural barriers. How did they were they able to really uh, captivate uh, some of the imaginations of these groups and you know turn them into franchises? Uh, so uh, it's fascinating that you, you uh, the, the the way they portray themselves is that they were were non ethnic. We're we're not an Arab organization. You know we're not we're not even sometimes like when you see the rhetoric it's it's very it's not even an islamic it's 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 very sunni uh, rhetoric very very specific sunni salafi jihadi rhetoric so it's like it's 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 very it's a minority targeting a minority audience but the minority audience because you know there there's uh, the pool is so big you know you 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 still find um significant um, uh, manpower in there so uh, so what's what's happening is when I did the interviews for the book, uh, so I interviewed about fifty-eight uh, semi-structured interviews with 
military paramilitary commanders and then 31 of them directly engaged uh, uh, ISIS or IS uh, later on after 2014 or in June 20, after June 2014 um, and uh, there, there was one thing that no almost none of them contested is that the the way that ISIS play on the Sunni Salafi jihadi uh, rhetoric and and stresses that we're nothing this is first this is the islamic way that's number one and two we are non-sectarian uh, and we, we're, we're sorry we're non-ethnic uh, and also we, we don't we don't we're non-sectarian in a way because there are no other sects like the, the, the all the others are heretics these are not even islamic sects these are like out uh, so the, and they play this propaganda uh quite well in a way that they would tell you, okay, so you think we're Arabs, you know, our, um, he wasn't the minister of defense, but he was called the minister of defense of, uh, of IS. He was uh, from Georgian, from Georgia, Bomar uh, Shishani. And uh, at, at some point also so-called minister of defense, but they, they I don't think they, they had that uh, title back then, uh, but also Bomar uh, Tajiki, uh, the, the, uh, um, the former Tajik security official who became one of the leading commanders of the of the organization, um, and these were not Arabs, and these were, well, these were commanding Arabs. Uh, so that, that that on one end, but also the things that they, they were, uh, because the the, the these uh, ethnic fissures sometimes create problems um, within in terms of unit cohesion. So one thing that also the most of these interviewees did not contest was the unit cohesion uh, of the organization. In, in the end, they either uh, uh, support each other uh, and then collectively either surrender, collectively uh, die, or uh, find a way to negotiate and, and retreat. Um, and uh, that was repeated multiple times. The, the only exception was insert, and the, that had specific circumstances in the in the north of the of the city. Um, so these were uh, so in terms of you know how to sell propaganda in terms of recruitment. Um, this, this is the, the the stance of the organization. If you looked at the the Nebat magazine uh, lately, uh, the usually the in first page. This is I'm talking about the, the latest one, three hundred issue three hundred twenty two. You know, which is this week. Uh, the first one is uh, on Nigeria. The first page on Nigeria. The one before it, the same thing. The first page on Nigeria, um, and then you know the in terms of the uh, uh, how many operations were done, thirteen uh, in Nigeria, and then nine in Afghanistan, six in Iraq, and so on. So the, the, this is in a week, in one week, thirty-three operations uh, from Nigeria, from the West Africa or the West Africa province, as they call it, all the way to uh, Afghanistan. Um, so the, there is a focus. They, they have a lot of coverage, and this is in Arabic. You know, they, they are reporting on Nigeria who don't read necessarily Arabic, but in, in Arabic. Um, and also uh, in, in local languages, as we saw uh, with, other, uh, with other provinces. Uh, so the, there is a bit of focus on that. And uh, they, uh, the propaganda, uh, what's happening in between, probably different. Like, the, you know, racism was reported. The discrimination on color was reported, or all of that was reported, uh, on ethnicity as well was reported. But uh, but at least the official propaganda that you see on the before you get recruited that this is uh, this is not an issue at all. Yeah, well, one of the things I wondered 
too, is how much of this is self, uh, self-selecting self among the groups franchising. You know, um, was it uh, in, in all these cases, was there, do you get the sense that there was a drive of the local group saying, hey, this ISIS thing, they're interested in taking people from outside Syria. They've been really successful. We uh, have a burgeoning insurgent group and, uh, you know, we need uh, we need some venture capital funding to get to the next level, so to speak. And uh, if we can affiliate with these guys, it'll really help us out. Was there uh, much of that happening? I, I didn't focus exactly on the sources of funding in the book. I, I mainly looked at how they, uh, they basically they take weapons that was the main source of armament, basically, the, you know, raiding um, uh, Syrian army depots and uh, Iraqi armies and other armies and uh, Gaddafi's armies in Libya. And uh, they failed to do that majorly in Egypt, but they, they just raid uh, checkpoints and military checkpoints and take, because they, they, you know, they, they didn't buy the T-62s and T-72s that we saw in there, you know, they didn't buy them. You know, they, these were taken from the, from, from the army, the, 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 the man pads that, that were taken, the, the ATGM. Um, and m- m- most of right. I was, I, I was being a little cute when I, I I said, you know, we need the funding to get to the next level. What I meant more was, you know, uh, our organization is maybe uh, one of many, and we just need something to give us a little edge over our competitors. Maybe in terms of manpower, training, uh, propaganda, um, attractiveness. Basically, I, I was just wondering how much of this is. How much work did ISIS really have to do to try to draw some of these groups to it? And how much of it were uh, was these groups uh, wanting to affiliate themselves? Yeah, no, d- definitely. They they have done a lot of work in that sense. And the agency was was very high there because you, you have to, too many factors against you and uh, basically too, too many enemies that they were targeting them. Uh, so the agency was high. But one thing they I think this is... Uh, well, this was critical, was the issue of playing on legitimacy, that we are uh, uh, the legitimate Islamic entity. Um, we are a state, we, we were a caliphate, and they still maintain to, to be a caliphate. And, uh, and therefore, it's a, it's a religious duty to give us an oath of allegiance. And of course, the, the overwhelming majority will laugh at that. Like, um, you know, but, but you will have an audience that will actually take this seriously. Um, and if they took it seriously, then it becomes a, a quite a recruitment tool. And that audience, well, when they compete on that audience, the, this is like mainly the Salafi jihadi sphere. So this is the, 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 their audience, basically, that would take something like that seriously. And within that Salafi jihadi sphere, how many of these organizations were able to claim a caliphate and control significant territory um, to uh, and ask for recruits and, and look like a state and believe in itself as a state and acts like a state and fights like a state. Um, not much, really. You know, even the Taliban in its heydays did not declare itself as a caliphate um, until today. You know, yeah, well, and I and I think that's that that's an interesting point because we often can I think especially in kind of a, a secular academic domain discount a little bit of ideology or think of ideology as, you know, purely a, a tool to capture interest rather than really being a powerfully motivating factor itself. And so I was kind of, I guess maybe my last question to you, this is and probably maybe an unfair one because it requires you to think about maybe some psychology of people you've never spoken to. But one of the things that always struck me, so you mentioned 
the uh, anti-terror uh, guy in, in, in Tajikistan who comes over. You see a lot of other conversions of very high-ranking people, um, including reports of uh, a government of uh, Islamic Republic of Afghanistan, the prior regime in Afghanistan, people coming over to join ISIS. You know, for some of these people that are in that situation, how much of it do you think are they true believers and how much of it is, you know, simply a question of uh, looking for the next big thing? You know, I, I also thought about that in the context of many of the high ranking Ba'athist generals. You know, Saddam Hussein himself had a very unusual relationship with Islam, you know, doing some things that on one hand seem like a, a, a true sign of devotion and on the other hand are kind of repellent, such as the, you know, infamous blood Quran. Um, so, I know, like I said, it's an unfair question, but what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, it's very, it's very difficult, really, because it has to do with, with you know, with their intentions. But, um, I mean, you will find I tried to classify uh, basically the, the, the only, the only uh, micro dimension that I touched was the, the individual recruit and how they impact the, 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 the combat effectiveness of the, of the organization. So I tried to classify them in the book between dogmatists, uh, opportunists, um, um, experienced, and, uh, and, uh, uh, and others. And, and the organization had all of them, had the, the, the four types, basically. And I was giving uh, specific, you know, the, the dogmatists, suicide bombers who were, who were would blow themselves up just to, you know, create a, 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 an advancement of quarter of a mile just forward uh, in a city. Um, and you you had the opportunists who would like who were very good with the logistics and they will try to basically um, gather as much resources for personal gains and status uh, as much as possible and before that they were uh, you know in a, in a very disadvantaged stage in whether in the within the society or within the regime that was ruling uh, at that point so you you, you will have uh, those you, you will have basically the the ones who were um, uh, uh, in a way, more of uh, of experienced commanders that that have transnational experience, uh, and then they were given a uh, an opportunity structure for the organization to be recruited. So this this is that's a mix of you know, in a way, a better status and also the ideology is served. So uh, it, so it's very it's very difficult really to uh, to identify one type uh, in that. Uh, but they, they're all, uh, I was mentioning, you know, how did they help the organization? In the book, I was trying to understand how how these very different type, even the ones who are like opportunists, you know, how did they help uh, the, the organization? And actually, that type is aggressive, is innovative, and uh, and is ambitious. So they, they, in a way, in t- especially in the logistics, in, in defense and in combat, maybe not the... Uh, not the the, the the top type in terms of in terms of it, but in terms of logistics uh, maintenance gathering resources recruitment uh, many of these types were very uh, useful for the organization even though they were not true believers by any means yeah well I think that's a that's a great point to end our conversation on we're coming up in about an hour I just want to say I really enjoyed the conversation I wanted to thank you for sitting down with us and uh You've been listening to New Books in National Security, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thank you, Professor Ashur, and hopefully uh, we'll see you around when the next book comes out. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure being with you, Jeff.